Welcome to the Collective Church podcast. For more information, visit thecollectivechurch.co.za. You know, we're excited to share with you guys just about our lives. And when Rob first asked us, there was so much stuff that we we're like, yeah, we know, I'll share this, I'll share that. But we've told our stories individually, but never had a chance to actually share together. And then as we were sitting down and starting to link our stories together, um, the thread that comes through were the words of that song. Literally, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, um, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. And yeah, we trust that you're encouraged with what we have to share. So, as an introduction, uh, we're both from Zimbabwe. Um, Zimbabwe! <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up in a town dead center of the country, pun intended. You could see tumbleweed blowing <laughs> when the wind blew. Um, but it was a strong mining, farming community. Um, we, I grew up in a strong Christian home. Um, strong parents that love the Lord, I guess my desire to serve the Lord was cultivated by their relationship with the Lord. And I think it's important as parents, the way you serve the Lord, the children, your children see, people are always watching. And it was their relationship with the Lord that cultivated something in us to serve the Lord. And I don't think I can remember a definite or a definitive date of making that commitment to the Lord. I just know as long as I can remember, I served the Lord from a young age. But I do remember going to my dad and saying, I want to be baptized. And I must have been nine or ten at the time. And he spoke to you know walked through the journey of baptism with me and got baptized and soon afterwards he prayed for me and I remember being filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues like like that and so just from a young age just always as an introduction that's that's the life of faith that we knew I grew up in Bluea so those of you who know Bluea and Zim not as dead center but a little bit sleepy as well um but I was born in Harare, so Shana, very Shana, like the, my former president who's just passed on, very, um, what's the word, stubborn and, you know, very Peace. headstrong. <laughs> but, at the same time, but at the same time, just have a love for people. So, um, born in Bluea, um, and I was raised in an Anglican, um, in the Anglican faith. I grew up there, my dad was a deacon in the church, my mom taught Sunday school. I remember going on scripture union camps from like very young and I remember my first camp I was nine years old and we went out to Matopas just outside Blue Air and it was the most amazing weekend and that's when I dedicated my life to the Lord I remember prayed the prayer and it was one of those like oh, okay I prayed the prayer this is cool and then just kind of carrying on with life did a lot of scripture union when I was in junior school but really it was a big the big turning um, point for me in terms of my walk was when I was 16 I went on um, a youth encounter camp they used to have these every year out in like Chinoy up in the north of the country and there was just a whole lot of youth that would go out and spend like a week on the camp and I remember going out there and that's the first time that I actually had worship like this it's the first time that I was actually able to like get up and have these like quiet times in the morning and really start to commune and, and spend time with the Lord and after that youth encounter camp I remember we came back and I actually led the Anglican church having a conversation with my parents and saying to them I respect the Anglican church and I respect what you guys do but this is not for me I need to I need more and I remember being released to go out and start um, being involved in a youth group that was absolutely on fire for the, for the Lord and this is 16, 17 years of age it was amazing and that's where I was um, baptized in the Holy Spirit and I started speaking in tongues there but just I remember driving home after that and saying okay uh, this tongue stuff is this, is this it and just kind of opening my mouth and trying to starting to babble and things like that but it was just so amazing we just had like a love and a passion and just a boldness to step out and do stuff for the Lord so that was right up until I was like in my teens and then I went through um, to university I studied in Zim University of Zimbabwe but a big change in my life happened at about 16, 17 years of age yeah. hmm. so what we decided is we'll just instead of going chronologically we'll just pick out moments that were huge moments in our lives 
And one of the earliest big moments for, for me was when I was 19, my, my dad went to be with the Lord. And it was, it was one of those impact moments where your life suddenly changes. Um, I had just finished school. I, was, I had a bursary to go to university in the UK. And then suddenly there were all these decisions that had to be made. Um, I have an older sister, a younger sister, and we had a family business and I kind of deferred it. And then eventually I, I made the decision to stay at home and help my mom run the business. I'd started an apprenticeship and just to be a support at home whilst my sister finished school as, as well. And just the comparison of where I was, I felt like I was stuck in a time, time warp and everybody else had moved on. My mates had gone to uni, they had finished, they had started their careers. And there was like a resentment that grew in my heart. You know, resenting having to fill a role that wasn't mine to fill. Um, resenting having to go to a technical college instead of studying engineering at university. There was just all this resentment and having to to walk, you know, to work through this. And what made the tragedy even worse was my mom had actually gone overseas to visit her dad, who was sick. And before she got there, he died. So she didn't get to see him. And two weeks later, we had to phone her to tell her to come home because that was when my dad died. So it was just a season of tragedy. And, and learning to work through that was, was a hard thing. But coming to that point of surrender and saying, Lord, at the end of all of this, you are God, you are faithful. And learning to, to make those handover moments, there was a change in life. You, you know, I started noticing the sun rose and the sun set. You start noticing it's not just flowers, but these flowers with color. You start noticing things in life. And so for me, that was like an appreciation of just learning to hand over to the Lord and saying, you do what needs to be done. This has happened, but how do we go on from there? Um, and through all of that, we became a very close-knit family. Um, I'm sure you've met my mom and sisters, most of you. Very strong, you know, growing up in a house with beautiful, strong, independent women. And that helped me find my beautiful, strong, <laughs> independent woman. But when we're all together in the car, I have to change my voiceover in the GPS to a male voice. <laughs> just so that there's someone else giving directions. <laughs> now I have Josh. <laughs> so after giving that release and finding the freedom, um, I started seeing opportunity. Um, just in work and life and the one thing that was missing was the element of relationship with the Lord that I had known before my dad died and there was a stirring in my heart to to restore the relationship and it came through that scripture that uh, says who will go to the mountain of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart and for the most instance I looked at my life and I lived a fairly good Christian life but the reality was this secret stuff that everybody struggles with as a young guy you struggle with lustful thoughts and you have addictions and there was this compromise and that scripture was really impactful. Lord, I want to go to that mountain with clean hands and a pure heart. What do you do? How, you know, where, where do you start? And I felt the Lord saying, start with you. <laughs> and so I started praying, just a lifestyle of praying and saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to take, you know, you'll, you'll meet me and, and honor this. And in prayer after a week or two weeks not much changed in my relationship 
But as you persevere, you know, God's faithful and, and he says uh, he'll reward those that diligently seek him. And suddenly there was a shift in my heart. And there's a scripture in Psalm 119 that says, how will a young man cleanse his way? Your word have I hidden in my heart. And that for me was a turning point. And suddenly God's word became real. It became alive. It, it had meaning. It had purpose. And I, I would wait for the moments to go home and just start reading God's word. And uh, at work, I'd lock myself. I had the keys to like one of the transformer rooms. There were like three keys. And I'd lock myself away during my tea breaks and my lunch breaks. And I'd just pray. And it was such a sense of the presence of the Lord. And when you see God, you, His desire to meet you is so much more overwhelming than your desire to want to meet Him. Because He does meet you. He, he steps in. And that relationship grew to such a, a deep connection with the Lord. And I'll share one moment that just stands out was I had gone out to the garden and prayed just before I went to bed. And I remember crying out, looking up in the stars and saying, Lord, more of you. And I went to bed that night and early hours of the morning, I felt the curtain brush my cheek. And in my days, I, I kind of tried to close the curtain, I mean, close the window. And then I kind of came to and I realized, hang on, my bed is in the middle of the room <laughs> and the curtain is firmly drawn. And in that instant, I recognized the Holy Spirit in my room. And all you can do when you're in God's presence like that is to fall down and worship. And, I mean, I think about that and I get teary. <laughs> and time was lost. It was like a time warp. And I woke up, realized it was daylight, and it was, it was just such an energy, such a vibrancy in my heart, having had those experiences. And, I'm sorry, I'm kind of lost myself here. And in that season of seeking, I started find, finding my calling, what my strengths were, um, and how God was using my life to impact others. Mm. Yeah? So in finding your calling, I never really knew what I wanted to do. I remember studying, you know, at school, you're like, what do I want to be? Oh, gosh. And I think in Zim days, it was like a doctor or a lawyer. You know, you either do arts or sciences for A-level, and then you choose a path. But I never, like, had a, I want to do this or want to do that. But I studied animal science at university. And then when I graduated, I know, I said, I've inseminated a cow. So. <laughs> but having done that, I remember leaving university and thinking, what am I going to do? And having graduated, I was sitting in church the one Sunday. I went to the Rayma equivalent in Zim. And they came up and they put, I remember they put up um, just to talk about outreach and what they're doing from an outreach perspective. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. Maybe let me go volunteer there. And I actually went and I volunteered at the outreach arm of our church called Compassion Ministries. And Compassion Ministries was amazing. I went there on a, on a Monday morning and I said, what do you guys, I'm here, I've got spare time in my hands, um, what do you need? And they said to me, the most dangerous thing on the planet is a university graduate. You think you know everything, but you actually have no experience. And I was just like, I'm here to learn. And I remember going there and I just started filing. I mean, I was filing, I was learning about the company, doing little things, making tea, etc., etc. But after like three months, I got a full-time role and I started full-time ministry. And it was I used to travel all around Zimbabwe training rural farmers on how to farm conservation farming, like farming God's ways principles. So making sure that they had a little piece of land, how did they get the most um, productivity out of it? And it was just incredible. Think of those African skies, you know, the blue sky, the dusty roads, when it rains, that smell of the rain. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like it on this planet. Just incredible. High lift jack, I mean, picture this, right? Like I'm wearing my jeans, torn jeans, t-shirts, because I'm out in the rural areas. High lift jack getting stuck in the 
the mud. I'm like 2.4 liter D Hilux, like getting the wheels out. Absolutely, but that was for it. the record. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just—it was just so hands-on. But the thing that really, really drove me, that really made such a difference for me in that time, and I really felt um, God's pleasure in doing it, was just when I was out in the communities of the rural farmers. There was just this innocence and this passion and this. They were just raw, this raw hunger that they had, just to learn and do more. And in that, obviously, we would then be preaching the word. And the whole mission of the of Compassion Ministry was to meet the needs of the poor spirit, soul, and body. But it was just incredible. For four years of my life, that's what I did straight out of university, and I went straight into that. And that transformed me. And transforming those communities, it made a huge change in my life. And I really feel like God stepped me into my calling at an early stage. Defining what that was, I don't know. But all I know is at that time, I felt so much pleasure going out and being with rural farmers and actually just ministering through the work that we did and showing results and kingdom principles. Now, it's in that time where I was like serving the Lord that um, I happened to drive through his little hometown, the dead center, that literally was like, there was nothing happening there. But um, it was in that time that God called us and that's how our paths kind of came across it and we met, but I'll get into that just now. Mm. So in this season of me figuring out my calling as, as well, I kind of sense opportunity to go overseas now. We've sold our family business. My sister's finished school. She's gone overseas as well. And I put my papers through to immigrate to Australia, to Canada, got accepted to both. I'm like, okay, Lord, this is really good. And one weekend I went fishing with some mates and I was sitting in the back of the bucky, and as we were driving through, you know, quite often they, they burn the land in order to get rid of the old grass and stuff like that. And we were driving through an area that had just been burnt. You know, you can picture that dusty road, you can picture the fire, you can, there were still parts smoldering, you could still see the smoke, the smolder coming off the clumps of grass, you could see where it had started climbing up the tree and then the fire had been beaten down. You could smell that smoke. You, you could see it, the fire had literally an hour before was blazing. And as we drove past, my mind's eye zoomed in. We carried on driving, but I, I vividly saw this green plant about so big. And it was lush and it was green. And my mind goes, that's strange. <laughs> Because you don't see a green, lush plant in the midst of this smoldering, burnt area. And as I zoomed in on this plant, I could see it was fresh. I could see dewdrops on it. I could see with clarity just how fresh and clean it looked. And as I looked at that, I started seeing little shoots starting to grow around it. And the word remnant dropped into my heart. And I started pondering on this. And we got there, we went fishing. And all I could think of that whole day was remnant, remnant. What's a remnant? What's a remnant? And we got back home. And the first thing I did was grab the encyclopedia and look up the word remnant. And, and the word I saw was survivor. One that stands the test of time. And that for me was a, I took it as a word in season to stand, because Zim had started going through that tough season of... This is 2000 uh, 2001, 2002. So the farm, farm invasions, invasions had already happened. Uh, lawlessness had started creeping in. Um, people were turning a blind eye to just the atrocities that were happening. And in that season, I felt the Lord saying, stand. Stand for righteousness. Stand for truth. Um, stand for, and as you stand for righteousness and truth, you encourage other people to stand for righteousness and truth. And that whole hyperinflation had started to kick in. And... People were starting to get anxious. People were starting to immigrate. People were starting to leave. There's no right or wrong decision. But if you're going to make a decision 
or make a choice, make it for the right reason. If you're going to go overseas, go overseas for the right reason. Don't go because there's fear in your heart. That's what we understood. You know, that's what the Lord is starting to show us. And just standing in that season of and seeing how the Lord would provide, how there was a camaraderie where people would start sharing what they had and how we started running out of basic commodities, things that you take for granted, and how the Lord would provide, and how His protection was so strong. I remember one instance, we had family farmer friends, and they their farm was surrounded by people, and they were trying to get their furniture off. And I remember driving there with the bucky, and after we got there, the farm was surrounded, and I'm like, oh, I should have come a lot earlier but we prayed and we loaded the bucket with all the furniture and we waited for like things to settle down and it was a bright moonlit night I'm like of all the days to choose to try and sneak out bright lit night and after praying we heard just the noise started dying down and we kind of went outside and the fire was still burning you could see there were people around but it was there was silence mm. it turns out everybody had gone to sleep <laughs> even the guys on the road who were blocking the road and we drove out drove around and managed to you know just get out just seeing how the lord would intervene in those situations um Another impactful moment was we had a property that we were leasing and malicious act, the tenants set it on fire and we lost the property that night. And I remember standing there with the fire brigade with their hoses and putting out this fire, but in my heart there was just this praise, you know, praising and worshiping the Lord in the midst of tragedy. And only afterwards, I, looking back, I realized resentment started growing in my heart at having had that loss. But it was when people would come and sympathize and say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And you take that word and you let it take root in your heart. And then the next person comes and says, oh, so sorry that this happened. And you start feeling justified in having felt loss. And there was a season where I went through just in terms of resentment because, Lord, you had blessed us and now we've lost this. And how do you go through this season? And to make matters worse with the hyperinflation, um, insurance paid us eight months later. But when we got the check and after cashing it, it was enough to buy a chicken burger, some chips and change left over for a Coke. And you start seeing God being faithful in the midst of loss, still providing, still coming through, still coming strong. Um, So we met um, during this, just before the hyperinflation part, we met, and what was interesting about um, our meeting, well, apart from the actual circumstances, I'd been out in one of these rural missions, and I was literally like, you know, if... As, an, as, an, as a proud black woman, I've got a beautiful fro underneath this, like, green stuff. So literally, you're, like, rocking your fro. I mean, you've got T-shirt, torn jeans. You have been out, like, knee-deep in, like, working in, 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 in fields, coming back, because we'd done a 5 o'clock in the morning mission, coming, driving back. We stopped through his hometown, because they had given us a warehouse to be able to store excess product, like fertilizer and seed and things like that. And I'd never met Gerard yet. So then I literally, we were there. We phoned his mom, because we knew the mom through the church. And uh, she sends her son. She's like, hey, you know, these guys are here to offload uh, fertilizer. Can you go and open up the, the warehouse? So Gerard walks up, and I remember looking at him and thinking, oh my gosh, thanks God. Because it was literally like. <laughs> and he literally blocked out that. I always try to say he blocked out that, that image of me because it was not pretty. But literally, it was like, got there, and we were offloading 50 kg bags of fertilizer off the back of a truck into this warehouse. For storage, and that's the first time I met him with um, the guy that he was working with at the time called Jackson. And I remember looking at him, okay, hi, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. And it was just like, thanks, Lord, is this ever gonna, you know, this is obviously a friendship, but it was actually good because it actually formed a wonderful foundation of our friendship. And we were friends for like a solid so side year. note, 
If you're ever going to get married and you see a girl lifting fertilizer off the back of a truck, you're like, that's the girl that's going to save me if I'm ever in a fight. <laughs> I mean, these nails don't be fertilized. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was so interesting because through meeting, in meeting Gerard and in our friendship that we formed, being two different cultures was quite a, it was quite, um, it was challenging for family, both sides. And I remember after we decided we're going to, you know, this is what we want to do, we're choosing to actually, you know, proceed. We weren't just going to date for the fun of it. We knew that when we got together, because we both heard from the Lord that this is what we wanted to do. Um, Gerard went and he told us his, his family. I went and told mine. And it wasn't the overwhelming, oh my gosh, this is so exciting, that we had expected. We were making some serious resistance. And in that resistance, it's hard, because as... Yvonne, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, oh, what a lovely. But it was never a situation, it was never about that. It's sitting and actually trying to understand, um, and this is one of, the, you know, for many years, one of my mantras was to first understand, then to be understood. But trying to understand and put myself in the next person's shoes and say, what is their perspective and what is their frame of reference? And how is this challenging that? And how do I, in this circumstance, not allow my self-esteem or my know who, who I am in Christ be worn down, but to actually remain firm and stand strong, know that he's spoken to me in his word and hold on to that word, but be able to, to stand through the test of time. I mean, it was, very, it was a very challenging period. I mean, to the point where... I mean, your family, there was times when they wanted you to come and meet other women and other young girls and say, let's take Jared away and let's get him to meet the rest of the world, so to speak. You know, this lovely Zimbabwean young lady, as lovely as she is, 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 not, is not, how can I frame it, is not what we see as our ideal for our son. And it was a very interesting time because the relationship had been there before, but then to be met with this resistance of how do you work through that friction and how do you overcome that? And as parents, I mean, now we're parents to Josh, which is so, you know, such a blessing. We certainly think about that in terms of you have an ideal or you have a, a, in your mind what you believe is you best, but God is the one who knows ultimately. And the path that he's brought us across is what brought us together in the weirdest of circumstances. But that's what brought us together. And we're sitting and saying, a year, um, six months after we made the choice to be together, he was in a situation where his family, it was, it was a no-go with his family at all. And yet, many years later, you guys have seen them here. We are the closest. We love each other. I mean, what God has done and the work that he's done has been amazing and can only be worked through him that's been able to get us to where we are today. So before we actually started dating, um, I had always wanted to volunteer in mission work. And... Um, I volunteered for six months at a mission organization based in Harare. It was a faith-based school. Um, they had a, a, a Bible school that would, they were upskilling rural pastors. And um, in joining them, it was literally stepping from here to out of your comfort zone. The first, first day I was there, I was with the American guy that was running the place, and he had to go pay, pay the bills. And he's like, I'm going to go pay them bills. And he reached into his pocket, and he gave me a whole lot of tracks. And he, with the tracks, he put them in my hand. He said, you go find some people, and you go witness to them, and you bring them to the church. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not my style. <laughs> and he's like, style what? <laughs> you go preach them word. <laughs> Okay, it wasn't that bad, but that's how it sounded in my head. And I remember going with these tracks in my hand, and I'm generally a reserved, quiet kind of guy, and I'm like, Hi, my name's Gerard. I'd like to share the Word of God with you. And, you know, as you do that, you do that the first time, and you become very aware of who you are. And as you keep doing that, and as you put that aside, you become very aware of who God is. And the reason for why you do that is because God is central in, in everything that you do. And so with this faith-based organization, um, they had a, a bookshop. They had what they called healing rooms behind the bookshop where people would come in. They would look for Christian books. And we'd slowly share the word. And then, you know, people needed prayer. They'd go to the back. We'd show videos on, on healing. And we saw miracles take place. We had a lady that came in. And there was just this sense of 
mean, if she walked in, the best way to describe her was there was a cloud that walked in before her. And one of the guys started talking to her and it turns out she had just been diagnosed with cancer. And we said, can we pray with you? And she said, yeah, okay. And so we took her to the back rooms and we had praise and worship and we prayed for her. And there was just this lifting that happened just like that. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, your faith starts getting increased. And she walked out without the cloud. In fact, the cloud lifted and left. A week later, she came in beaming. And she's like, I've just got my results. I've got the all clear. And, you know, when you live in a lifestyle and you start cultivating faith, it becomes part and parcel of who you are. And so the, the word's very clear. Cultivate the gifts within you. And so it's something that needs to be done on a, on a daily basis. Cultivate the gifts within you. Um, of all the books that we had, I and mean, we had huge volumes, we'd have guys coming in and they wanted to look important and they'd like, no, I only read in Hebrew and you're like, okay, sorry, I, <laughs> I can't help you. But there was a little book and Rob shared about uh, Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God. There was this little book in the section and I pulled it out and it just, for me, was life changing. Practicing the presence of God. And people would come in and, and one guy came in and said, I'm looking for a book on warfare. I'm like, okay, maybe you need to go to the military shop. <laughs> and I said to him, look, we've got this book at, at the time, I think it was like 400 Zim dollars. And I said, look, I'm not really a good salesman here because there's this little thin volume. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. It sells for $20. Take this book, buy it, and if it makes an impact, great. If it doesn't, come back and I'll discount this big book on Wolfie. <laughs> and just learning to practice the presence of God, people realize that you don't need spiritual warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the putting down of strongholds. And so when you live in that lifestyle of surrendering to the Lord, putting Him first. When He comes into a situation, that situation has to be. And that was our reality. And after six months volunteering, the guys who were heading the organization were called back to the States and I was asked to take over as a caretaker role. And the one thing I wanted to do was have an impact with the rural pastors. And the, so what, we, what I did was introduce a curriculum on sustainability and farming. And for me, our friendship had just started. And for me, that's like, that's a great way to spend more time with God. <laughs> and so we, we worked on this curriculum together. And before long, we would go out to a coffee shop and they would be closing. And we'd still be talking. And then we'd have to find a place that was open late into the night and then we, I read, started sensing in my heart that Lord is this the person that you've called for me and yeah that's how our journey started. Wow. And after you finished volunteering he started his own business but in that time I think so Gerard clearly hears from the Lord sees lots of visions that for me hasn't been that clear cut. I'm always like, uh, okay, Lord, where would you have me go? Okay, I'll take the step, and then if you if it follows through, then then that will work. And I remember I left for South Africa in 2006, and this is again peak hyperinflation in Zim. But it was the whole thing about one South Africa had an amazing slogan, "Alive with possibility," which I still think today is just phenomenal. Um, the other thing was about predictability and unpredictability. And Jared was saying to me, if you choose, if you stay on the one path or you choose to take a different path, you've got a choice. There's always two choices. One is a predictable path, you carry on doing what you're doing at the moment, or there's unpredictability where you take a step and you don't know what's going to happen. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back to what you know. I remember sitting there and thinking, okay, let me take the unpredictable route. So, got into a car, got an amazing offer in South Africa, came here and started a new life in the USA. End of 2006. At that time, Zim was just going absolutely crazy with hyperinflation. I mean, I remember going back after six months in Zim and having a cappuccino and a muffin for nine and a half billion dollars. They gave me, they gave me 500. What is half five? Whatever the difference is, I gave them 10 billion dollars. And then um, I said to him, "What do I do with the change?" And the guy was just like, 
like you can't do anything with it. But that's just how quickly things are deteriorated. And yet you were still doing business in Zim. But it had gotten to a point where from a business perspective, you had to start, you had to make a choice. And again, predictability, unpredictability. And there was a lot of moral conflict with regards to how you proceeded and what you did and the choices that you made. Mm. So just with that whole hyperinflation period, I mean, just to give you an idea of how bad things got, I, mean, I went out for drinks once. My first and second drink were two different prices. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at the bill and I'm saying to the waiter, uh, but sorry, and he's like, if you wanted them, you should have paid for them up front when you came in, and I would have kept them cold in the fridge for you. <laughs> and so it just it just shows how bad things have, you know. And what happens in that is the moral conflict, because within that situation, there was opportunity to make a lot of money, but there was all this that compromise. And God's word doesn't live in gray area. But you have to follow what God's put in your heart with what's right and wrong. You can't judge someone else based on your moral conviction. You have to go and do with what you believe is right. And so as an example, I remember we, we got paid and I had this, I mean literally people would pay you in cash. And you would carry cases of cash. And we just got paid for a job and... They had reversed the prices. Government had reversed prices to like three months ago. And everybody was just going into the shops and clearing out stuff. And I remember going, I can score. Time to change everything. Big TV, just full on everything. And I loaded st the, the cash into the car. And as I was driving out, I felt this voice go, and where are you going? <laughs> like, I'm going to go shopping. <laughs> and... As I started going down, I started evaluating and how that moral conflict, if that had happened to you and somebody came in and cleaned out your business, how would you feel? I remember getting to the end of the road, making a U-turn and going all the way back home and going, God, this is so unfair. <laughs> As a Christian, why can't we? But you have to learn to, um, to go through all of those things. Um, and so... The one, inc another instance was at a business forum, we were having a conversation and I couldn't get through my head of making the one payment. And the one guy said to me, well, if you can't pay by the rules, don't play the game. And that for me was a life lesson. If you can't play by the rules, don't play the game. And a year later, I was faced with that decision. It's easy to say. And it's easy to walk away from small, from small deals, but when it's your life, and I looked at where I had become and who I had become, you, you go into survival mode, you start hustling, you start doing all of this stuff just to survive, and you realize that your center line has moved. That, those seasons of feeling the Holy Spirit touch my cheek to wake me up and have relationship in the morning, those were gone. I remember sitting and going, Lord, that's what I want. And I, in that moment, I had to make a, a decision. Do I carry on with what I'm doing or do I return back to you? And they said in the Old Testament, there's a story of the axe head where Elisha, uh, they were chopping wood and uh, it falls in the water. And they say to him, you know, can you help us find the axe? And he goes and he for me, the Acts talks about the Word of God. And when you're in that place of indecision, always go back to the last place you heard God. And for me, it was back in my hometown, the dead center of the country, which had now shrunk because of all the stuff that had happened. And in going home, I had to make that decision. It feels like I'm going backwards, Lord. But in going there... I went with the intention of seeking the Lord. And God honors that when you honor Him. So in moving back, long story short, we were long distance relationship. Yvonne had come to Harare for the week. And I phoned and I said, I need to have a chat with you. I said to her, I've made the biggest decision of my life or the most foolish decision. I've given up everything. I've sold my business. I've given everything away and I'm moving back home. 
she's like, with your mom? I'm like, yes, I'm moving back home and I'm going to volunteer for six months at the church. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need you to know that I can't offer you what we were looking at because I'm in a place of indecision and so I don't want you to keep holding on and so I don't want you to have false expectations. Yeah, a year later though, um, we got back together, so Gerard came. I mean, what was interesting was there was a whole reconnection. He went through sabbatical, and in that time, I remember saying, we clearly heard from the Lord again, stood on that word, but this is not panning out. I was 20-something, gosh, so long ago. I was 20-something, and I remember thinking, this is not the ideal. I mean, met the guy, we're going on this path, and then now this is being ripped away from me, but Lord, did I hear you, did I not? But I never doubted that I actually heard him, and I stood on the word, and I said, whatever happens, whatever comes out of this, I'm trusting, and I know that you have the plan. I don't know what it looks like, but I've got to actually stand on that. And a year later, we reconnected. And in fact, Gerard came back because um, he'd started mining in Zim. And he actually was uh, with, his, with his partner. And he came back and he actually said, listen, I think this is what I want to do. Um, I've made a, not a mistake, but I'm, I've got a missing factor in my life. And it's you. <laughs> and so he came back. And literally, after that, we got engaged. And soon after that, we got married. Um, and it was quite interesting because when we got married, um, we chose to get married in Mauritius. And for a number of reasons. One is beach holiday. <laughs> Two. <laughs> but secondly, um, there was something really special about Mauritius. Um, we'd been doing, I'd been reading, um, what's his book? Stephen Covey's Eight Habit from Effectiveness to Greatness. And they talk about Mauritius. And they talk about how it's a place where you've got different cultures that come together. So you've got the French, you've got the Brits, you've got the Sri Lankans, you've got the Indians, and you've got the Creole. Everybody comes together and they make it work. It's actually amazing that they've got very low, and they actually had 100% employment. Literacy rates were through the roof. But as a nation, they were thriving and they were excelling. I remember sitting there and we were watching this before we actually went to Mauritius and we are like, this is amazing. There's something about this country that is talking about differences in cultures coming together, but actually building on. And if we look at us, I mean, our whole family now, even with Josh, are three different ethnic groups, right? In one family. It's quite amazing. So he's got his, I've got mine, Josh has got his that we're forming. But at the end of the day, it's a kingdom culture. And that was so interesting for us is that we said, okay, Lord, we choose this place to get married so that we can actually start something because we know that there's a prophetic there's some, there's some prophetic meaning in this. And so that location, and it's, and it's lovely now because every time we apply for visas or do anything, well, not that he has to, I have to, apply for visas and everything, your marriage certificate, we to get married, Mauritius, it's always a point of conversation and it's always a reminder for us in terms of, hey, this is it, and even more so with our little boy. Um, but that's the thing, Mauritius has always held a very special place for us. And, I mean, we'll obviously go back for holidays because it's part of what the Lord wants. <laughs> but... But yeah, Mauritius was such a special place for us. Mm. So after we got married, we decided to live in South Africa. Before we got married, I had started a small mining project, um, which we then put on hold. But with the politics and the way things were going, uh, it was land ownership dispute. And so I had to go back to Zim to try reestablish ownership. And... Um, in doing that, uh, we had conflict with people that had been given the farms, and so we had overlap of mining claims and farm claims. And um, there's a moral conflict that comes into play because you know what's right, you are doing what's wrong, but the system perpetuates it. And so there's a moral conflict that arose again, and that moral conflict was, do you pay the bribe to clean your problem? Do you pay people? Because people were offering us, pay us and we'll make your problems go away. And we decided to stand for what was right. Uh, Psalm, I've got a scripture, Psalm 103, that says, God will execute righteousness and justice for all that are oppressed. So we stood and we held on to that. And... Um, a year later, we were still fighting this process in court, um, but we we knew that there was the the right thing to do was to stand for righteousness. Um, a year later, I came back to South Africa, and one of the first things everyone said to me. So where's all this gold that you've been mining? <laughs> I married a gold digger. So he literally was like digging for gold, excuse me. And he came back after a year and I was like, okay, so we agreed that 
you're going to start this, you know, entrepreneur, do your business. But a year later, like, where's the gold? I'm not seeing anything come through. Like, it's, it's, we've had a season of nothing, and I'm doing my bit, and this is not what I signed up for, you know, in getting married. I was thinking double income, no kids, you know, we're going to be living this life. And it was so interesting because just that challenge in terms of having to come to a place as a couple where we're sitting and saying, we have to redefine our, with the traditional roles, if you will, and sit down and look at this and say... Yeah, so, so as a guy, as the head of the home, you automatically assume the role of breadwinner. And suddenly when that's taken away, you lose a little bit of your identity. You lose what you think is your masculinity. You lose what all those things that you attach, what the world attaches. But we sat down and we had an mm. honest, open conversation. Tough, but good. And in honoring Yvonne and saying in the season as being the main winner, you allow me to do what, give me the freedom to do what I can do. Mm. And coming to that place brought such a freedom to us yeah. where it's not about roles, it's not about hierarchy, it's mm. about living life together, it's about being on the same page and it's about building a legacy. Mm. And that was so interesting for me because I saw a shift in my work because I started resenting getting up and going to work all the time. So I was just like, if I don't go, then what's going to happen? But it actually released me and that freedom in actually sitting and saying, I'm releasing him to actually pursue what he needs to pursue and there are no limitations. I started flourishing at work. I started stepping into areas that actually were more of my passion and what God had actually called me into. And I just saw literally a step change in the work that I was doing in my career, in my performance, etc. So that's been huge. And in terms of where I ended up now, and I mean, with the way my career is at the moment and with the work that I'm doing. But at the same time, we'd also want to start a family. And I mean, this is 2013, and we were like, okay, Lord, we've been married for two years, and we don't have any, you know, there's nothing's happening. What's the story? So we started the fertility process, and we went to Medfilm Clinic, and we went and got all the tests done. And the doctor's like, good, good, good. And then he's like, because uh, I had endometriosis, I had a previous, uh, previously, so he was like, let's just go in and test this. And then he checked, and he was like, actually, we need to cauterize it. It's come back. So we were like, oh, okay, we've done this before. That's no problem. So we went in 2013. He cauterized. It was a half-day procedure. No problem. Got back home later that evening. And then the next day, we go for um, results. And then he says, so everything is fine, but he found a blocked duct. So once a month, an egg is released. It comes through, but in one of the, from each, from an opposite ovary every month but one of my ovary ducts were blocked, which meant that instead of having 12 chances once a month in a year, we actually only had six in a year to fall pregnant. And in that six, he was spending 50% of his time in Zim. So, <laughs> so looking maybe three, oh, My maybe travel two. agent knew her cycle. <laughs> Every time he came back into the country, they'd say to him, how long are you coming for? He's like, uh, my wife and I are trying to have a baby. It was just so funny. But in that, I mean, so we, so the chances were, re, were, were reduced, and on top of that, my age, right? So I was like late 30s at that time, 38, 39, and, oh no, well, late 30s. But they're sitting and saying, everything is working against you at this time. This is not something that is actually um, possible. The chances of it happening are very, very slim. And so we sat and we were like, okay, Lord, we've got to trust. We have to trust. We can't control this. I can't turn around and say, be fertile eggs and, and that sort of thing. But we had to kind of let go. It's not in your control. But at the same time, where we were at church, so many of our friends were having babies, second babies, third babies. And every time I got invited to a baby shower, I was like, oh my gosh, not another one. And you get to that place where it's just like, okay, you know what? Um, I actually don't want to go. I was like, it's great, and everyone's lovely, and I really mean well, send a gift, etc., and maybe like send a script to someone, but I was just like, I don't think I'm just going to keep going, because everyone's like, oh my gosh, don't worry, if it's going to happen to you, and I'm like, that, don't talk to me about that, I'm on my own journey, um, but God will do what he needs to, and it was literally, um, what are we, uh, fast forward to like 2018, where we've had the miracle that we've had, but we'll get into mm. that like now, because we run out of time. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, so in, in between... Um, we've come to a place of understanding roles, function, and Yvonne starts blossom, blossoming at work. The beginning of the year, I get a word, audacious faith. I'm like, well, what does audacious faith mean? And literally, that, those two words, audacious faith, meant re-looking at how we were doing our operations and turning it on its head. Mm -hmm. In six months, 
what we were asking for in trying to raise finance, we were asking a hundred times more than what we were originally asking for. And the Lord, the way he brought things together in order to consolidate projects that we were able to do a leverage buyout, and just seeing how God was faithful in that and how he turned that situation around. Um, but we still had the sustained conflict and the moral conflict is always there. So just because you do the right thing doesn't mean God's going to bless you. Just because an ATM gives you money doesn't mean you need to be happy about it. That's its job. And the moral conflict came back in. Now that we've grown in size, you still have to make that stand for righteousness. And in making the stand for righteousness, we had to learn to let go. Mm. And so there was that deferred hope. Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And we saw we had to make that decision in our hearts. And I had to come to a point of release because the moral conflict is always there. And when you live in an environment, so when you live in an environment where injustice is perpetuated, um, it becomes hard to go forward. And so I had to come to a point of release and saying, Lord, because it's your identity when you walk away from something that you built so big. And it was an identity crisis for me. And for me, the point of release was walking up to one of the war veterans and shaking his hand and saying, I bless you and walking away. And in walking away, I understood God's justice. Our justice is you've done wrong, you need to pay. God's justice is they've done wrong, I will restore. And that for us was a life, a life lesson in saying, Lord, your justice is about restoration. That became our life story. That's, that's we, um, in the restoration, what we saw was we moved from our two-bed, two-bathroom two flat into a new house in Bryanston. And it was almost like the Lord spoke to us in that season because the day we left the flat, we had one clivier plant in this little patch of grass and it bloomed the day we left. And the house we moved into had over 30 or 40 cliviers in full bloom. And we walked into this garden with these flowers in full bloom and it's almost like the Lord spoke to us and saying, this is the start of restoration. And that, and that really is what led us to where we are with um, our little incredible miracle. Because in that restoration season, we just had, a, we had to let go. And like I said, with regards to fertility, we just said, Lord, we have no idea. You will do it in your time. And many people had been praying with us over the years. But with, when the collective started, there was just an acceleration in the words, the encouragement, the prayers, people coming alongside, walking the journey with us. And it's so interesting because, again, you know, we go back to the first Sunday here and with little Ollie and, you know, and sitting and as we're about to leave and we're just like, oh my gosh, you know, I was like, my uterus is doing flick flacks. And, you know, little Ollie and Janine is like, oh, we just got to pray. And the, you know, Robin Kirsty, we're praying. We know the Erasmus is praying, Whittles, Peter from the beginning. I mean, so it's just so interesting how lots of people came alongside and were just like, we're going to start praying, we're going to start praying with you. And we started getting more and more words of encouragement, more and more words about children. And at that point, we were like, okay, if it comes, it comes, but we've reached a place of peace where I could go to baby showers now and not have any issues. But we've reached a place of peace and we're actually genuinely happy for other people. We'd see children and our hearts would leap because we're just like, the Lord's put this joy inside of us. It was a real season of trust. And it was literally in July last year, we went to Cape Town on holiday, as one does. And whilst we were on holiday, came back in August and we found out we were pregnant. But before that, we'd been having coffee with some friends and they'd said to us, you guys should really seriously think about the IVF process and really kind of go that route. And we said, well, we actually are not opposed to it. If God wants us to go that route, then that's fine. If nothing happens before November, then we're going to start the process in November. And that's what we committed to. And come August, I remember I'd been in Durban with work, came back and I said to Jar, something strange. Actually, I'm not sure what's going on. And we had this old pregnancy test that had been in our drawer for like three or four years, I think. Because we just like kept it there. And and I was like, oh, okay, let's do it. And remember, we peed on the stick. Okay, ah, you're not here. <laughs> <laughs> and it came 
have a positive and I remember laughing and thinking like, is it the test? Is it like real? But we have I'm like, how old is that stick? Maybe you get a new one. Because <laughs> we've done, I mean, if you do so, again, again, hope deferred, you do so many tests and you're waiting and hoping to see this change and everything is like oh, on the stick and it's actually not. Yeah, it's on God. So it was so interesting so, because after that, um, we just had a piece, and then I phoned the guy in, and I'm like, this is it, our moment has come, and I say to her, okay, I took a pregnancy test, back and I'm positive, and when can I come and see you? And the woman says, you can come in eight weeks. I'm like, what? <laughs> eight weeks? Like, what's going on? And then they tell you all the stuff that could potentially happen, and we just had a piece. It was so incredible. Eight weeks later, we go, to the, we go for the scan, and it's just amazing. She puts that scan on you, and you just hear this heartbeat. And I mean, at that moment, it was this little bean, and I remember sitting lying there and just thinking like wow this is amazing and our little our little Josh is coming and there he is with Shaney right at the back and I mean he is he is our child of promise but the last the last bit we just want to share is you know the, the, ch the church has walked with us and has continued to walk with us throughout the whole journey and we were celebrating at conception celebrating every scan and I had the Best pregnancy. I mean, it was. I had was not sick one day. He was an active baby. Everything was great. I was fine at work. I, I flourished and I thrived. And then we went in for our last scan on the Monday before Easter. And the gynae said, "Look, there are a couple of things that are making her, you know, that had been on her radar." And she just said, "Look, I think we need to do not. I think, but we need to do a, a C-section, rather plan it rather than do an emergency one. So let's actually." have you guys come in on a Thursday and we'll actually deliver your baby boy before Easter. So we were like, okay, he's coming now for real. So I mean, work, I finished with work um, a week early, but we went in that night. I remember we went in and I say checked into the hospital with our, you know, Stanton Medi, got our bags, like we're going, checking into the hotel, got our room, we're setting it up and we're like, yay, we're going to have a baby tomorrow, we're going to have a little boy. And then, so we spent the night, which is fine. That morning, they came, they prepped me for theatre, and we went straight into the operating theatre. And it was a beautiful day. We had this playlist I'm playing, and I'm just going to play um, this playlist this year to um, tell us the story. But it was just an amazing time, because God had given us both a song from way back when, and ind individually. And so we were just like, this is amazing. Yeah. So this is what was playing in the operating theatre, as they actually start the process. Mm. Yeah. So atmosphere is jovial. The doctors are great, the surgeons are great, everybody's got this camaraderie, we're telling jokes and chatting and dad get your camera ready. <coughs> and then next thing I know, my camera's there, Josh is behind us, and then there's just this silence in the operating theater. And we're trying to make sense of what's happened. And you're like, okay, hey doctors, they know what they're doing. And then you notice every, there's this seriousness that comes through. And um, the surgeons look at each other and they just head down. head down and they start operating. And the P takes over and she starts performing CPR on Josh. And then she starts um, ventilating. Yeah, using the ventilator, and then that's running out of power, and so she's putting more and more pressure. Now we're starting to get a little bit worried. And in that moment, you start bargaining with God. And he says, wrestling that takes place. Pause yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry. There's a wrestling that takes place. Lord, if you do this, That that's happening. I'm on the table and I'm I can't move, so I'm like numb from all the way down. But I'm looking on the side and I can just see commotion happening. And in that time, all you can do is just stand on His word. You yeah. don't have a choice. And we were just praying in tongues, literally. We were just praying. We just said, Lord, we can't have come this far for this to be taken away. This is not fulfilling what all the words you've given us. Trust your faithfulness. 
um, the promises that you've given, the words of encouragement, this is not in line with your word or the prophecies that we received. I mean, from the amazing baby shower that we had and the words that were spoken over his life, we're like, this is not yeah. the end. This cannot be what... There was a tangible be. dimension in that room. And it was like a veil between where we were, what we were experiencing, and eternity. And it was like a, a wrestle that happens. And we came to that place of bargaining, wrestling, and then resting. And it was in that moment of coming to rest. Because I'm trying to block Yvonne, she's cranking her neck trying to see what's happening. And I'm trying to distract her. And it was in that moment when you come to rest and you say, Lord, there's nothing I can do. That there was this overwhelming sense of peace that settled. And in that moment, we were holding hands, we were praying in tongues. And in that moment, Josh took his first breath. It was literally 30, uh, three seconds shy of two minutes that he didn't breathe. He had turned blue and they had to give him cortisone and adrenaline and stuff like that. And then he took his breath and in that moment, as that peace descended, things changed. There was a shift. There was a shift, yeah. And I just, after he took his first breath, my whole body just, it's like I just melted. But that peace just came upon us. And then after that, we were just like, you know what, Lord, we thank you for his life. Straight after he comes out, we go and he, um, he comes and spends the night with us the first night. But then the very next day, he goes into ICU again. And I mean, in ICU, we were just like, Lord, what is going on? But the interesting thing and the consistent thing that we found was just that his hand was with us. And the scripture that I always hold on to for my whole life was always, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. That's always stood. And we saw that with Josh. And as he went into ICU, he was there for like seven days. There was such favor upon him. Every kind of test that was possible to be done on him was done, and he got the all clear. I mean, he's a healthy, bouncing baby boy. He's growing so fast. Um, he got all the nutrition that he needed from a young, I mean, right from the get-go, because he was being intravenously fed. And so we literally were able to just take a step back, go home, sleep at night, come back in the morning, and actually start to come to terms with what had happened. But in all of that, actually just start focusing and praising God and seeing his hand on Josh's life the whole way mm. through. So, yeah, as, as we tell our story, we, we realize ours is a story of hope. It's a story of persevering through hard times. It's a persevering of trusting God, learning to have faith and peace. And there's a scripture in Isaiah 23, 26.3 that says, He will keep you in perfect peace, whose heart is stayed on you, because you trust in Him. And that phrase, perfect peace, when you look it up in the Hebrew, it's shalom. He will keep you in shalom, shalom. Sorry, you. Shalom is absolute. You can't get any more shalom than shalom, and yet God says, I will give you shalom, shalom. I will keep you in perfect peace, whose heart is stayed on him. You've got to come to a point of having an anchor, being stayed on God, and trusting him. feast on a story like that, just a life submitted to God over time, isn't it incredible, from business loss to family loss to highs, lows, you know, just this history that you've walked, I just felt like it's a feast and I think individually uh, probably people feasted on different parts of your story, but I just thought maybe to finish, could you just pray for us, um, just for... I think what we started off with, God is faithful to keep yeah. His promises. And I think what I take from that is like, even though you, I mean, you're facing struggles now, you've got another business startup that's on, you know, in process. And life never stops. 
But you hear the stories of his faithfulness and it's like, you will do it again, Lord. Absolutely. You will do it again. And so, can you maybe pray something along those lines for us? Sure. Yeah. Can we stand, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can rest under the wings of your faithfulness, Lord. Father, we pray that where we're at today, Lord, you know our hearts. We thank you, Lord, in sincerity as we turn our hearts to you, Lord, and as we cry out, Lord, for each situation that we're facing. Thank you, Lord, that we will be, that we will have confidence knowing that you're faithful to fulfill your promises, to fulfill your word over us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that where there's deferred hope, that you bring desire in, Lord, that would be a tree of life, Lord, that hope, Lord, would be in you. We thank you, Lord, that where people are seeking you, Lord, for things, Lord, that they would know that you are faithful to meet more, more than what they're asking for, Lord. Yeah. Father, we thank you that uh, we can dwell richly, Lord, in your presence, Lord. In your presence, there's perfect peace. Yeah. So, Lord, we just pray perfect peace, Lord, upon everyone here. Lord, we thank you that peace comes from you and you alone. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information, visit thecollectivechurch.co.za.